We have a couple of questions from some people who will be along shortly. Um, Jan, you're on microphone only. Would you like to ask your questions? And, oh, he's showing up. He's Hello, everybody. Now. <laughs> there he is. All right, Jan, would you like to go ahead with your questions? Okay, I try. All right, so I wrote them down, but <clears throat> um, I always have the feeling like um, getting them out sp spontaneously and have the idea and concept in my mind and then letting it flow. But this time I think it feels quite okay to just uh, read them out. <clears throat> All right, so I actually wanted to add on uh, to the question of inside meditation from Frank, but he uh, apparently didn't ask his question uh, quite yet. So uh, just ask it anyway. All right. So when there is awareness of all the patterns of personhood or just thoughts and feelings in general, it is possible to disconnect from them with practice. It doesn't feel like ignoring them. They just pass. And sometimes, like now, uh, I just wanted to say that because I feel like um, some nervousness and maybe anxiety, it's like um, expressing it in, in the body. So that's something interesting. <laughs> I think that's normal. <sighs> okay, anyway. So it doesn't feel like ignoring them. They just pass or sometimes they grab hold of you. <laughs> For example, judging or interpreting thoughts on how the other persons might feel or think. In some moments, I get a lot of chatting in my head while talking with others. It feels like doing many things at once. Also, it can, can be very distracting. And I realized the, self, uh, the less self-confidence there was, the more chat was going on. And it also is less distracting, the less I believe in those thoughts. I follow the teacher Moji, who is focusing on the no-self and disidentification from personhood. Isn't that just the meditation state where you are just in the now and in the being level? And is it okay to gradually go into the being state, accepting all the old life patterns that have a specific probability and make them less probable by just not going to those old patterns? And I have like a metaphor created, like I think of Polaroids that have a specific opacity and the less I watch them, the less they are visible. So that's something you can answer to. Okay. Um, there was a whole bunch of questions there, Jan. Um, yes, it is uh, possible and a good thing to do to live in that being level and let all those previous patterns that were probably uh, more intellect and more ego than they were anything else, let those patterns just kind of flow by to where you don't give them energy. You don't put input to them. You don't act mm -hmm. in them. You don't work at them. But you can see that they're they're still there. They're like patterns. And you might think, uh, well, you know, a year ago I would have done that or I would have done this other thing or whatever, but eh, I don't really feel the need to do that anymore. So, yes, you can – you can. Uh, that's a transition as you – as you, you um, learned to – implement your knowledge at the being level where you get rid of your fears, you get rid of some ego, you get rid of some beliefs and you actually get rid of them at the being level. When you do that, it changes you. You're no longer the same person, but you still have memory of the way you used to be. And those two can kind of interact with each other some, 
but you just don't give it energy. You don't connect with it. You just see it, but it's, it's like you're looking at it as an outsider. You're no longer in that space anymore. You're not in that headspace. You're not in that emotional space. You see it objectively uh, from as, a, as an outsider more than that it has anything really to do with you other than history. So that's just a good sign that you're growing up. That's a good sign that you're changing. It's a good sign that things are moving. You're not uh, staying the same. So that's part of the process of, of growing up is, is this uh, change. And often change is a, you know, change is a process that has some turmoil with it, up and down. Yeah, it's bumpy. It, uh, it's tumultuous. That's the way change is. So if it gets a little rocky sometimes, well, that's okay. Just kind of hold, you know, keep your hand on the rudder and uh, just steer right through it. Become become uh, uh, detached as you can from dysfunctional patterns, even though you see them, and just live the ones that are more functional. And pretty soon those dysfunctional patterns will just kind of drift away into into old memory. They won't be anything that's trying to get you to put energy into them. You know, and in the beginning, those old patterns want you to go revitalize them. They want you to feed them. You know, they want you to get back into that, and they make up all kinds of reasons why you should. And it's like being addicted. You know, you kind of get addicted to these old patterns, and it's there's a little withdrawal symptoms going on to uh, break that uh, to break that addiction. But just keep with it, and it'll work out. Uh, it, it really is like a pull that, that pulls you at, at this point and you really want to go there and it's just some things that hold you back and you just want to shout out or get it out or something like that and it's really like a package of a burden that, that you're um, uh, grabbing with you or I, I mean if, if you use that metaphor uh, it creates that I, I think but it's like really um, if you're just trying to let let it go and let it be, then it, it changes, I think. Yeah. yeah, that's what changes. You see, if it's in your intellect and you want to let it go, it's your intellect saying, I need to let this go. That's your intellect talking. Yeah. And then you're struggling at that point. But when you actually get it at the being level to where that intent to let it go has finally succeeded and now you're at the being level and you have changed, you have let it go, Now it doesn't bother you anymore. Now it's just it's just a, a, a memory of the way things were, you know, a long, long time ago. And that's the difference. But the transition is a little bumpy. It's not like, you know, one day you wake up and all the fears are gone. You know, it doesn't work like that. It's a, it's a process that you, yeah, you have to struggle with it a bit. But if you keep that intent, I want to not be that way. I want to be better. And if you have that intent, You'll get there. But these these old habits will pull at you. It very much is like an addiction. You know, they're old habits. Um, it's not really an addiction, but a habit's a habit. You know, and it, they're old habits, ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of feeling, and they will pull at you. But you just have to be strong enough to say, no, I don't want to be like that. I want to be, you know, free of those fears. And it will. It just takes time. Now, that time... You know, it could be a year, it could be five years. You know, it's not necessarily quick, but if you keep working on it, you will succeed. That's, that's a guarantee that you'll succeed. It's not like it's impossible. It's, it's, uh, just 
takes a lot of commitment on your part to do it. But if you're committed, it'll go a lot faster. Yeah. I definitely feel that it's possible. It's like those ups and downs getting less and less long, like in the past when, when, uh, for example, some people are depressed and they can't get out of this thought loop that uh, is connected to the emotions and that flare up every time some situations come in and test test them and they can't get out of this loop and get a different choice. And I'm at the current position where I see where I can make different choices and currently it feels... Um, like um, a bit to one side and a bit on the other side because now some kind of personality is trying to hold on of me and trying to not let me be the way I uh, can express myself freely because I'm not even aware of those little uh, um, mind corrections or observation patterns that I may be in because I'm not in that reality. Like if my world gets bigger and bigger, then I can see all those little patterns, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the world, uh, my world view gets bigger and bigger. Like uh, in this ex in this situation, I'm really like I feel um, body sensations that are that can be kind of intense. I mean, um, I'm a little bit shaking. That's maybe the normal nervousness, but uh, it's like some personality just wants to hold me small and I created it because I remember those times where I was uh, beside other people and I felt bad uh, because they were around me and I just didn't want them uh, to be small. And Yeah, there's a strategy that a lot of people, well, most people one time or another use, and that is if I don't play, I can't fail. You know, if I don't play, I can't lose. Yeah. So they tend to think of themselves as small and they kind of sit on the sideline and they don't really get up and become a part of a part of the action because if they did, what if they failed? What if it didn't work? What if they were not competent enough? What if they weren't good enough and they actually got out there and tried but didn't work? Well, the I, that possibility of failure is so frightening that they don't try. So then yeah. they just re, they remain small and on the and on the sideline and it's just a it's a strategy of dealing with a fear and it takes a while those are the tough ones to get rid of those kinds of fears are are hard they take a lot of a lot of uh focus and a lot of work to get rid of those but you can get rid of them you can just put them aside to where you don't feel that way anymore you know you're okay you know you you're adequate and and fine and whatever and uh, you just don't have that fear anymore but keep working. You're obviously making progress. You're obviously struggling with that progress, but that's the way it is. That's normal. That's, that's, that's the path. So keep going. You're doing good. Okay. I will, I will try. It, it is good just to release some shit. <laughs> I'm sorry that I said shit. Oh, good. And, and, ah, never mind. It's fine. Okay. Um, is it okay to, uh, um, Ask the other uh, question right right ahead. Sure, go ahead. Okay. All right. Um, if a meeting with a person or with persons is going to happen, especially when there is insecurity, a potential partner, where is love involved, or a wise person, or cool people, I often imagine meeting them, and oftentimes, I, so beforehand, I, I imagine them. Uh, I imagine myself meeting with them, and oftentimes, 
a prediction was made, often out of fear, and how uh, the situation could go wrong. And I also feared them. Well, um, then when I see that happening, I can stay back sometimes, but not not always. If if the connection is really hard to that fear and that uh, not being understand and not being treated uh, right and, and all that stuff, it's like um, when I can just uh, uh, when I can get distance off of that situation, um, then uh, sorry, I'm getting distracted. Um, when I can stay back and watch and eventually uh, switch to the to other possibilities that could happen, like good possibilities, mm-hmm. and then in the end figuring out the fear that there is, like it's a it's an intellectual process, but also it goes with emotions. Like I I, I can imagine ah that feels a little bit fearful. Then then I think about the other person, how it how it how my how my she is feeling right now. And then um, I tell myself, well, that's a, that's a fear that I'm maybe not good enough for her. And I just uh, accept that I have it. And then I see what happens. Like, I'm just going into that situation and say, well, maybe then something else is happening. And that helped a lot. Like, that seriously helped a lot. It was like I watched uh, some videos of Moji. He, um, he's like a non-dualist, um, non-dualist uh, practitioner and... Uh, uh, how do you say it? It's like a sa- sa- sahada, sahada. Like where we it's a big community of people who struggle with with all the beliefs and want to uh, go, want to be themselves. And he just says, "Yeah, you are it already. You just don't have to look for it. You just, you just are." And then, yeah, I watched it over and over again, and little uh, little things guided me through the way where I was collecting point, uh, collecting situations where I could. Uh, just um, as you said before, like 20 minutes before, uh, with that other question where you said, yeah, yeah, you you meditate and then you um, uh, use it in your life. And so gradually, like uh, from one mo- for, um, in one moment, I was with a friend and he was really, he had some uh, um, some uh, uh, chakra knowledge and all that stuff. And I was always thinking like, yeah, that's a metaphor. Yeah, that's a metaphor. But I was always downgrading that and not appreciate, appreciating the, the usefulness of it. And then just um, when, when I was dr- driving home, I watched the third of your fourth um, Stuttgart VIP videos where you just said, yeah, well, um, it's a metaphor, but it's useful. And because of so many people have used it in the past, it's a really useful tool to just communicate with the larger cons- consciousness system. So uh, then again, that was just immediate response from one of your video videos where I just uh, could uh, lose that um, uh, belief trap. Yeah, and one thought tells me just right now that maybe I have talked enough, but I hope it was okay. Yes. <sighs> oh, all fine. those years, man. Yeah, you yeah. are. Uh, you're doing well. You see, when you when you are when you're controlled by the fear in the sense that the fear is making your choices for you, you're not really controlled. You're just, the fear is, is you and it's making the choices for you. Then you have that feeling, Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm going to meet these people and they're probably not going to like me or I'm going to say something stupid. You know, I'll, I'll, I won't fit in right. And you have all that fear because that's your inadequacy, uh, fear. But I can tell that you're making progress because when you get to that, rather than just, Taking that and, and, 
forcing yourself to go anyway, which is a, really a step forward, you're saying, well, there's other possibilities besides that. You know, it might work out really well, and it could work out badly, but it could work out well. So let's just go do it and be it and interact without any sense of the outcome. Stop worrying about what's going to happen and just interact with it. Don't have a goal. Don't have a particular outcome in mind. Oh, after I meet these people, they're all going to fall in love with me and, you know, they're going to be singing my praises and give me presents. You know, instead of having a goal of something, just say, I'm just going to go. I'm going to interact. I'm going to say the things I feel like saying. I'm just going to be me. And then we'll see what happens. And that's good. That's progress. That's a real big step forward. Just that you can see the other possibilities. So, again, you're doing fine. You're on your way. It's just going to be bumpy, and it's going to take you a while to get there. So just keep keep working on it. Sounds like you are making progress. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jan. Carolyn expressed an, an interest in asking a question. So if you'd like to do that, Carolyn, please go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask, I have been struggling lately again. Like, I just can't get rid of my addiction to sugar. Like, every time I have, like, a, I feel, like, pressured or I have to work a lot or a lot of things are going on or I'm tired, I tend to, like, eat a lot of chocolate or something sweet. Uh, and But, like, sometimes I have periods of weeks or months where I don't even, like, think about it so it's just like really that like that moment when I'm triggered and I'm pressured and tired and yeah it makes me feel very foggy like I always think it's gonna like make me wake me up but it's just uh it's just like fogging my mind for the next hours and I would like to know like how would you think would be a better way for me to deal with pressure or like how to overcome that Diction. <laughs> well, you know, there's a there was a uh, kind of an anti-diction uh, campaign in the U.S. Uh, aimed at uh, at uh, young children, and their slogan was "Just say no." You know, that was the that was their slogan. Just say no. Well, I think maybe you need to uh, take that on. You know, when you start feeling pushed and stressed, that's when you're you know, that's when you are kind of least in control. When you're tired, things aren't going right, or you're overworked, and you have a lot of stuff going on, then's when you're weakest. And when you say, oh, a candy bar would just really be great right now, just say no. Say, no, I'm not going there. It's just an addiction. You know, alcoholics feel exactly the same way. When alcoholics stop drinking, They can often go for two weeks, three weeks, you know, several months or whatever. And then they get into a situation where the, you know, the day at work didn't go very well. You know, the, they got bitten by a dog, you know, other things happen and life isn't so great right at that moment. And it was like, ah, uh, I just need a drink. I just need a, just, just one, just one drink. That's all. It won't be a problem. I'm just going to have one drink, you know, but then one turns to two, turns to three. And it's just an addiction problem. So you're showing the same sort of uh, behavior that any addiction shows. And the only way to get through that is just say no. You know, when you get into that that point where you're where you're weak, 
and you feel like you need something else to come in and fix it for you as opposed to you having to fix it yourself from inside, you want something outside to come, you know, swallow the magic pill, something that's going to make everything a little better because you just want it to be better and you don't want to really have to make it better because you're already tired and, you know, stressed and whatever. So you're looking for something outside of you to fix your situation. And that's a problem. You have to fix it from the inside. You have to shake that, that stress off and say, no, okay, things have been, the things are tough right now, but I'm not going to eat the sugar and make them worse because then I'll just have the same thing again. I'll have the same addiction thing a month from now or a week from now. And it'll just go on and on and on. And I never will break that addiction. So it's a, it's a matter of seeing that weakness, understanding it, and it's just the addiction talking. And you have to just say no, take responsibility for cheering yourself up or making yourself feel better or getting a little burst of energy on your own because you intend it. With your intent, you can say, okay, I need to liven up a little bit, you know, and you can, uh, you know, do a little jig in your, in place there, you know, do a little dance and a little boogie woogie or something, you know, just get yourself psyched and jump up and down and you know, do a couple of exercises or something and then go, okay, I'm better now, ready to go again. Take care, you know, take care of the problem yourself rather than expecting uh, some outside substance to uh, help you through. I know it's not what you wanted to hear, <laughs> but yeah, it's really the way it is. You know, addictions are tough. And sugar, sugar is one of the toughest addictions of all. You know, it seems that it's, it's harder to stop eating sugar than it is to stop smoking or stop taking any, any number of, of addictive drugs. Sugar is just a real tough one. And it takes, I don't know, like four months, four or five months without sugar at all before that addiction starts to disappear. You know, there's a lot of other addictions. If you can go, you know, just a couple of months, you kind of feel like you're getting free of it, but not with sugar. Sugar holds on a long time. Your body uh, has gotten used to that, and it wants it, it craves it, and it starts making excuses in your mind like, well, just one candy bar won't hurt. Eh, just one soda won't hurt. I'll just do this one time, and that'll be all right. And you start making these excuses, and then pretty soon you fall off the wagon, and now you means that, you know, a month later, you're going to do it again. And a month later, you're going to do it again. So toughen up and uh, just say no. Okay. Because I have, like, I have talked to some specialists about it. And uh, a lot of them say that, like, they, I have, like, some parasites in my uh, intestines that crave the sugar. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not me, but the parasites. But that's uh -huh. so right. horrible. Like, like, like little worms or animals, like uh -huh. living in there. <laughs> yeah. It's always nice. It's always nice to know that it isn't you and it's something else. But do you really want to feed all those little parasites and worms no, to keep them to keep them healthy and reproducing? <laughs> I'd think you'd want to make their life as miserable as possible so they'd go find someplace else to live. <laughs> yeah, but so so do you believe we have them? Like, is it something that's? I think I think it's probably an excuse to make you feel better. Okay. It's not you. It's your worms. 
you know, if it were that, they would probably be some deworming uh, thing that they would give you. You know, you can probably get that at a vet, right? You can get something that uh, gets rid of worms. Yeah, it's like it's like it's really common, like in the raw food scene. Like everybody talks about the parasites. You have to get rid of the parasites because they crave sugar and they make you like crave things because and they are like uh, communicating from your intestines to your brain. But it's like such a it's. A, For me, that's such an ugly thought. Like, I don't want to have anyone living in there. <laughs> yeah, well, then don't. I'd say that that's probably not the case. It's probably just a good way of escaping responsibility. It's not me. It's these ugly little things that live in me. That's what the problem is. But in any case, I think the solution would be not to feed them. Make them go away. Let them starve to death because they're not getting any of your sugar, and then eventually they'll be gone. So uh, in either case, you come to the same conclusion, whether you have parasites or not, and that is don't eat the sugar. Because like you also said, um, once we want to change something and we decide the being level, it's not a problem anymore. But like, that's, I really that's true. But like, how is it, like, how can I like program it deep into my being level how can i decide okay now not anymore is there something you just have to keep keep repeating it things that are repeated tend to get down into the being level more quickly than things that aren't so you just keep repeating it i'm not going to eat any sugar i'm going to read all the ingredients on the package and if it says sugar i'm going to put it back on the shelf any kind of sugar qualifies and if you just Keep that in mind. In other words, you say that. Tell yourself that. You walk into a grocery store, say, I'm not going to buy anything with sugar in it. And be very careful, and you won't. So it's just that, that desire to succeed is what will enable you to succeed. But if it's not that, if that desire isn't at the being level, it's at the intellectual level, like I should stop eating so much sugar or should stop eating all the sugar, then it's not going to work. You're going to always slip back and, and make up an excuse and eat it anyway. But once you're really committed at the being level, then it'll stick and you won't have much trouble and your withdrawals will be much, much less. So I, so me, uh, I, I used to buy that 100% chocolate and Jens likes it too, but we, we now, like, it's not in the shop anymore. They don't produce it. So the only thing I could find is 99% chocolate. <laughs> is that something you would still eat or is it still, like, affecting consciousness? Well, you know, you have to make that up. You have to figure that out on your own as far as what affects you and what doesn't. Again, be, a, be an experimentalist. But, no, I personally don't eat that. I eat the 100% chocolate. And I find that... Uh, It's a very pleasant thing to do every now and then. I don't eat a lot of it, but every once in a while, I'll have a piece of 100% chocolate. But the fact that you can't find it probably is more of an excuse than a reality. If you tried a little harder, I'm sure you could find it just fine. Okay. And so, and uh, to the being level decision, like at the at the state of your consciousness, if you want to change something. Like, do you have to repeatedly tell it to yourself or uh, do you just have to, like, have the intent and it just, like, works out for you? It uh, it takes me a lot less time than it used to. I pretty much can, you know, make changes uh, fairly quickly. 
wasn't always true though. You know, it wasn't always true. You know, when you're, when you're in the beginning of this, it, it's, it's some trouble, you know, you have to, you have to work at it. But if you're really committed, if you only do those things that you're really committed to and you don't, you don't live your life as a zombie just doing things because you do them, but you do things because you're really committed to them, then you'll find that you're, you change very easily because you don't accept things that you're, that you're not committed to. You don't do things just because. You don't eat sugar just because it's all over and in most of the food that you find and because everybody else eats it. If you're committed to it, then you just don't do it. So it's that level of commitment that's the key. And eventually you will live your whole life at that level of commitment. You'll only do those things that you're committed to. And stuff that's not really committed to is just very superficial stuff that really isn't that important in your life. That's part of becoming authentic. When you're authentic, you're really committed to the authentic you. But it's like like that. But what if you like have doubts? I feel like if you if there's like a little piece of doubt for like whatever topic it is about, it like it makes things a little bit more difficult. It does, and that doubt is part of your intellect because you're at the being level trying to say you know just say no. But somewhere in your intellect, there's something that says, well, that's being a little extreme. You can say yes every once in a while, and it'll be fine. That's your intellect making excuses for your addiction. So, yes, that little doubt isn't so much a doubt as it is your your intellect, your ego, trying to, to uh, help you do whatever your ego wants it to do, you know, whatever satisfies your ego. And uh, if you're really committed, it'll work pretty easily. If you're not, then that little doubt, that little piece of your intellect is always going to come up with some good excuse why it's okay this time. Yeah, I really want to get rid of that. <laughs> yeah. I really want to get rid of that. <laughs> well, really focus that you really are committed to an act, to doing it. You're strongly committed to it, and you will not accept doing it sugar is just unacceptable you just don't do that anymore you see you get that level of commitment then that little voice that says oh it'll be all right this one time you deserve a candy bar you know you've had a very bad day you deserve a candy bar you know that's that's that little uh, voice that's that's your ego trying to give you what you want in your your ego so just get more commitment to the you know to what you want to do and you'll find it those those little doubts and things will disappear. Now, you still need to be flexible. You know, once you're committed to something and you get to that space, you can always reevaluate it and say, well, is this really a space I want to be in? Is this a good space? You know, otherwise you just create another belief. If you, you know, so when you, if you want to get rid of sugar, then you use that commitment, you get rid of the sugar, but it's a perfectly good thing to do what, six months, seven months, eight months later when you haven't had any sugar and you don't have any any uh, need or any desire for it to look and say, well, do I feel better? You know, is my mind clearer? You know, is this actually a better state to be in? And then you might want to be uh, an experimentalist and say, well, let me have a candy bar and see what happens. And what you'll find out is it'll make you miserable. <laughs> and you'll go, oh, yeah, right. This is the state I want to be in. Okay. It was a good experiment. Now, uh, you know, let's let's go on. But that's different than just being weak and doing it because of a weakness. It's, you know, so I, I don't want people to just 
know, get into things, say, well, here's my intent, and by God, this is what I'm going to do, and it'll be like that forever, that's not good. You need to have an intent because it's something you want to do, but you have to always be able to go back and reevaluate, question. Remember, you always stay skeptical, and the person you have to stay skeptical of most of all is yourself. You don't want to put yourself in any kind of trap. But eventually, say six months or a year from now, you really realize that that sugar was a bad thing. You know, I'm doing so much better without it. My mind's clear. My meditation's clear. I'm not so befuddled. You know, I can work better at work. I can work better at home. And there's really nothing there that's, that's an advantage. It's all downside with no upside. Then it's easy because now, you know, it's like it's a foolish thing to do to go take something that's going to make you feel bad. So then it becomes really easy, but you have to get to that, that point. But you can always test things and see if that really is, is a good thing. You know, that's what you do when you become, when you become uh, authentic. You say, all right, what's the authentic me? You know, who am I really? And then you just act that way, interact that way, the authentic you, and if you find that that creates a lot of trouble, you know, the people don't like you so much anymore and, uh, you know, you just got fired from your job and you know, it's not working for you, then you need to go back and you say, well, maybe that authentic me needs to change. Okay, it's authentic. Good for me. That's step one. But step two is to change that authentic self to where it's more love-based and less fear-based. So you always, no matter what you do, you can always stop and evaluate whether you're moving forward or not. So we don't want to get into to belief space here with our strong intent to do something. It's not that we have to believe it and make it a religion. You know, I have the anti-sugar religion. That's a mistake. You want to just do it because it works better for you. It's It makes your life better. That's the reason. Yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, I have a question from Tim C. Actually, you know, following up on that question that Carolyn just put in, um, we have from Hannes a question on the rule set and cellular intelligence, which speaks of parasites. So let me add that one in first. The microbiome is the sum of all living organisms which live within the human body, bacteria, parasites, etc. We need all of them for our body to be healthy and well-functioning. So bacteria are not the enemy, but a symbiotic partner. There is one to 2,000 mitochondria within each of our billions of cells. Among other things, they're responsible for the oxygen supply, and all of them are communicating with each other in intelligent fashion. In a way, they're all part of a superorganism working together like clockwork. My question is, what about free will and choice on this lower biological level? Based on how mitochondria behave, they seem to have a basic level of intelligence and probably also consciousness and free will. Are there really billions of small intelligences within our body all with free will. Okay. My answer to that is probably not to the to all of those things being being uh, free will, but where where you draw the line between what's conscious and what is just algorithmic. In other words, things can be intelligent. You've heard of AI, artificial intelligence, and you've heard of expert systems. 
Well, expert systems can can be very smart. They can figure things out, uh, you know, very very uh, difficult things, and be very clever about how they figure things out. But that is just algorithmic. It's not because they're conscious. It's because they have a very uh, complete and effective database, and they have the algorithms to assess what the problem is and come up with the appropriate solution. So if you have at the cellular level or any other level something that is basically algorithmic, another way of saying that is it's hardwired. It just does that because it does it. It's not making choices. It's just acting out its biology. Okay? It's not a, a choice. So it's a response. You know, you give a, you, you, uh, you get a response out of a particular thing. You know, with people, the doc, when he's giving you the, the, uh, the, um, what is it? The, the go over at the, at the end of the year physical, as I'm thinking of, he sits down and sometimes you have to cross one leg over the other and he takes out the little rubber hammer and he goes ding, you know, right on your kneecap and your leg flies up. Well, that's just a reaction. That's not a conscious choice. You don't say, oh, he hit me with the hammer. I should raise my leg now. That would be a conscious choice. He hits the, with the hammer and the leg just flies up all by itself. And it would do that even if you were asleep, you see. So that is what I mean by something being algorithmic. It's just hardwired. It's the way the biology works. Now, if these cells at that level are acting the way they act, and they do, they communicate, they pass information, they have a lot of receptors and, and um, sensors. They can sense if oxygen is getting low or if the waste products are getting too high. If the, you know, if there's enough of this or that chemical around, they have all these sensors and based on what the sensors get, they do various things. They, they, they run different programs, if you will. If all of that is, is hardwired, is algorithmic, then no, all these little things are not conscious and they don't have free will. They've just learned, they have evolved to work certain processes in certain ways. You know, like a machine. Now that's the machine view, right? If you got a if you got a big complex machine, it's got all kinds of nuts and bolts and screws and and thingamabobs in the machine. You don't think that all the nuts and bolts and screws and thingamabobs are conscious just because the machine is really clever, and the various parts of that machine, you know, gather data and make choices. Or in your in your, uh, you know, my my keyboard and my word processing software talks to each other, and my word processing. Software says, oh, I think you misspelled that, Tom. You know, you know isn't this a better, isn't this a better uh, spelling for that word? You see, well, that's intelligence. It sees my mistake and, uh, you know, sends me something, sends me a message about it. That's kind of a, a little minor AI. So I would say that probably at the cellular level, we're seeing hardwired algorithmic responses. Okay. That means it has sensors to collect data. And then it makes choices based on that data that it collects, but it makes those choices according to an algorithm, according to a, a set pattern, not because it has free will and decides, well, okay, I got this sensor data and that sensor data. What am I going to do with that? Well, let's see. I could do one of these five things. Which one am I going to do? That the cells probably don't do that. They probably just do what they do because that's what they do. In which case, no, they're not conscious in my definition of conscious. Because my definition of conscious is a finite decision space, which means it's non-algorithmic. There's some number of choices that the system could make, and it's free to make any one of those choices. 
And that then defines free will and consciousness. So, you know, we have this issue with trees. Now, are trees conscious? Well, we found out that trees have a pretty, a pretty rich uh, and intricate life going on under the ground with, uh, you know, bacteria and with fungus and all kinds of other things. They can reach out and help other trees. They can communicate. They do all sorts of things. So does that mean that they're conscious? Well, not necessarily. First, we'd have to test to see whether they're actually making choices with free will or are they just responding to stimulus? Uh, when the, when the fungal things do this and when the bacteria do that, then I do this other thing because that's just the way I'm hardwired, you see? So it's sometimes it's hard to tell. You know, sometimes it's really hard to tell whether a, a, a more primitive life form or a more simple life form, I should say, is conscious or not. You know, is, are snails conscious? Are bumblebees conscious? Well, I vote yes for bumblebees because I've seen one stalk a person. Are, uh, you know, are mosquitoes conscious? Well, you'd have to get some biologists do some very clever research to see whether indeed they are making free will choices or whether they are just reacting like you do when you get hit in the knee with a rubber hammer. You know, they're just working out of their, their instincts, if you will. So don't know for sure whether there is consciousness at that level, but I would guess not. But that's just a guess. So it's not uh, that I'm saying no, couldn't possibly be, could possibly be if they are actually making choices, but I don't think we have that information yet, that they're really making free will choices. If we do have that information, then yes, they would be conscious. That's what makes something conscious or not conscious, whether or not they have free will choices. Thank you, Tom. The next question that was submitted to the Fireside Chat is from Tom C. Uh, sorry, Tim C. Can we create beings in our imaginations that would have free will? Um, kind of yes and no. We can do something similar to that. You've probably heard of the word thought form. Well, if you have thoughts, you know, thought is, we're going to use metaphors here. I'm going to use the metaphor energy. You know, thoughts are energy. Thoughts are information. And that, that thought can, can affect other things. So you can have, say, a thought form. And that thought form, if you put a lot of effort into it and you put a lot of energy into it, and that energy may be because of your fear. You know, it's not necessarily because you intend to do it. It may be just because you, your fear. You can create a thought form that is very much like a being. It acts, it interacts, it seems to make choices, but it is really a thought form of your own creation. It's not an independent thing. Okay, so when you, uh, you know, if you get run over by a train, then that thought form disappears. It's it's your creation. It's not like it lives independently of you. So it's not an independent thing, but it does often interact with you in ways that are dramatic. So yes, you can make forms like that, and you can imbue them with certain uh, attitudes. And uh, can we say, well, attitudes is probably a good word. You can imbue them with certain attitudes, and they will then play out those attitudes 
pretty much without you telling them, now do this, now do that. They will just mimic those those attitudes. Now, whether that's free will or not, that'd be hard to guess. Again, you'd have to have people do a, a test on whether or not that's just your own programming. You program them with that attitude, and now they're just replaying that attitude back to you in ways that may seem like they're creative, but maybe aren't really creative. They're just routine, you know, just making uh, kind of random choices as how to how they do things, or maybe you're feeding them as to what to do or, or what not to do unintentionally. So the answer is kind of yes and no. It, uh, you can create another, quote, being, unquote. It's a thought form. It's not independent of you. It has its own personality and its own attitudes, which it gets from you. And it can help you out and be a pal, or it can be devil you and drive you nuts. Depend on whether you create it out of a positive space or a negative space. If it's created out of fear, then they tend to be like demons. They tend to be things that are constantly bugging you and and talking to you and telling you to do stupid things and, you know, making your hair stand up and, and uh, making your back hurt and your feet hurt and other things. They seem to be attacking you all the time. Well, that's just your own fear. You are interacting with your own fear in that case. It's a, it's a being you've created that now is playing out that fear, you know, towards you. So, yes, possible, but within those limits. All right, thank you. The next question is from, uh, we had a couple of questions left over from past MBT forum uh, participants. And this particular one, before I read the question, I would like to, Remind some of you from the forum and some of you who, um, not here, but some of you who submit us, submit questions to us from outside sources to please take advantage of reading Tom's book, My Big Toe. Take advantage of the vast information that's available in the workshops that Tom has done in the past. They are complete, such as Calgary, the Marseille workshop, the MBTLA workshop. These all have a complete explanation of a lot of the things that you're asking about. So I would I would really recommend that you check out some of those workshops and also some of the videos on some of the subjects that you're submitting questions for. The next question uh, here, uh, which goes back a couple of months, is from Danny. And it's a question on reproducing in a world of suffering. Um, he thanks you for your contributions and your work. I've come across a philosophy which is not new but rare in today's society. The idea that the cause of all suffering and chaos is birth, which perhaps is similar to what the Buddha says. Given what that you think the point of the game is to lower entropy, surely the most effective way to do that is to refrain from reproducing. To me, reproducing seems to be the most unloving thing to do because you're subjecting another being to suffering and death just for your own pleasure. As a parent of three myself, it's difficult to accept this idea, but I haven't yet come across a convincing counter-argument. He hasn't heard of some of your work. 
And coupled with this question is what on earth was the creator of this game thinking when it created this? Why all the suffering? What on earth is the point of evolution? You are good at using your imagination, as are your followers. I invite you all to imagine the extinction of mankind on this on this planet. What type of world do you see? Okay, well, I disagree with pretty much all of that. Uh, yes, if you don't have any birth, then you also don't have any potential for growth here. If you don't have any birth here, if there are no humans, then there is no potential for humans to grow in this in this uh, virtual reality entropy reduction trainer. So that's um, what do they say? It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, we know that there is a lot of dysfunction here and the suffering, but that suffering is us making poor choices. The system didn't say, oh, I'd like to build a world of suffering because suffering is really cool. And, you know, I'm a masochist and I love to see suffering. So I'm going to make this world that's really, really full of suffering. It didn't work like that. The system needed to evolve, needed to expand the rate at which it was evolving, which was very, very slow in this limited chat room environment it was in. Couldn't evolve very well because the choices were not challenging. The choices were were, uh, you know, to communicate or not to communicate. That was it. There was no consequences, whether you communicated or didn't communicate, or the consequences were very minor. So within that realm, evolution, growing to become love, growing to make it about other, was very, very slow. So that's why this reality was created, a reality with a tight rule set where all of one's choices affected everybody else, where everyone's interactions made, you know, consequences for them and for others. Well, now you've got a place where your choices are really important. And because we weren't very grown, because we'd been in the chat room for a long time, when we finally got to a place that had challenging choices, well, our ego and our beliefs and all of that stuff just was right there. So we made a lot of poor choices, and we're still making poor choices. But as a whole, humanity is evolving and growing up the quality of their consciousness. Go back 500 years and see how cheap life was compared to now. You know, you don't have to go even that far. Go back 300 years, and you'll see that the place was a lot tougher, harder, unfriendlier than it is now. We're making progress, but progress is slow. Because evolution is slow. But the good news is that as you make progress, it's easier to make more progress. So your progress curve starts out very, very slow and then gets steeper and steeper. So we're now kind of on that knee of that curve over the last couple of hundred years where we're on that curve where it starts to, you know, take off and go. Um, this is not the time to want to bail out of the experiment just when it's starting to get interesting and pay off after, you know, 200,000 years of, uh, you know, living in a in a warlord environment. Now we're doing better than that, at least some places in the U.S. and in the you know northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. We are we are uh, improving overall as a species. Doesn't mean that uh, everything we're going to do from now on is going to be terrific. We we still have to grow up, but it's 
the experiment is working, I should say. We are evolving and at a much faster rate than we were in the chat room. So this is a good experience. And not having any humans just basically gets rid of the point in the experiment to begin with. That's why this virtual reality is here. It's here for people, for critters as well as people, for individuated units of consciousness to make choice, choices and grow up by making those choices. Okay. If you're a bumblebee, you get to make some choices and you can grow up according to those choices, but you don't grow up very much if you're a bumblebee because your, your uh, decision space is small. You have just a few choices that you make, you know, maybe a hundred choices or something. But if you're a human, you've got huge numbers of choices, things you can do. And as we evolve that choices, those number of choices just get bigger and bigger. So a human today has a lot more choices to make than a human did 500 years ago. A lot more choices. You see? So as that, as we, as we uh, evolve on this path, the consciousness that has a large enough decision space to want to play a human avatar has some place to work. Otherwise, without the people, we'd be back to bumblebees and clams and, you know, and monkeys and a few other things that uh, had much limited decision space. And the whole system would be chugging along at a much slower rate. Now, there's nothing wrong with those those things going on a slow rate. That's the way that consciousness evolves. It may, by making good choices, work its way up the chain to, uh, you know, go from one species to the next to the next and end up eventually growing up to the point of having a big enough decision space to play a human avatar. But it's, it's all part of this process and humans are part of it too. To look at it and say, well, it's not a nice place, therefore we should end it. That is very short-sighted. I agree, it's not a nice place, but it's getting nicer all the time. Now, that doesn't mean that there'll be a decade where it gets less nice. It just means that overall, in the long term, it's getting better. And if you're fearful and negative about it, and your whole idea is, oh, man, this place sucks, and humans suck, and it's such an awful place, and, you know, if there is a God, he's really mean, you know, and has a bad attitude. If you have that negative viewpoint, then you are part of the problem, not part of the solution. If you have a positive attitude where you're here to, to meet challenges, to grow up, to make the best choices you can, to deal with all the dysfunction with caring, to deal with it with compassion, not with anger, you see, then you're part of the solution. So the negative attitude is one that is not helpful. It actually holds us back. And keeps us from growing up. If everybody had a positive attitude, hey, let's make as much of this experience as we can. Let's be as helpful and as positive as we can. Well, we would all take a couple of giant steps forward. And as long as there's a whole lot of us going, oh, woe is me. This is so terrible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's generally your ego talking uh, because your ego is feeling like it's not given a fair shake. It's not uh, in a pe- in a place of peace and tranquility and happiness, and you just like to end it all. Well, that is a part of the problem. That negativity helps feed things that then are ugly, feed things that are not nice, 
And if you keep on that path, you're liable to end up being depressed. And then when you're depressed, you'll hurt a lot of people, mostly the ones you love. And it's just not helpful. So I'd say look for a better, more positive attitude toward your life. Okay, this world has a lot of dysfunction in it because we're not that grown up yet. But this dysfunction isn't because the system made a world full of dysfunction for its amusement. This dysfunction is here because of us, because we are dysfunctional. Getting rid of us is not the right answer. Getting rid of us is a very short-sighted answer that kind of throws a monkey wrench in the whole consciousness evolution scheme. Growing up is the answer. Instead of feeling negative about it, turn around and see what you can do to become love, to become caring, to become compassionate, to get rid of the ego and get rid of the fear. And then you will be making the optimal contribution to this world becoming a nicer, better place. So that's uh, probably not at all what you wanted to hear, but that is uh, at least my opinion on it. Thanks, Tom. The next question comes from an MBT forum user on water and the periodic table of Mendeleev. Um, is water necessary for life in other virtual realities, and do they have the same elements of the periodic table? Well, you know that would be a really hard thing to answer unless you were, unless you had equipment and were a chemist in one of these other realities, and you could just you know go through all the stuff in the world and see if it had all the same kind of things and the same sorts of quantities that we do. But what I have, you know, I haven't done that, so I can't really address it directly. But indirectly, I can address it. I've been in many other virtual realities that are much like this one. Realities that have strong rule sets that create a virtual reality that is very, what we would call, physical. Let me get the other side of the quote in there. Yeah, physical. Okay. And in those realities, they seem to be very similar in structure and, and components as our reality. Now, they don't always have the same kind of critters that look like us, and they don't always have the same sorts of, you know, architecture and ways of doing things. They have different processes they've evolved to do. But the basic background, the basic stuff seems to be pretty similar, at least the way it behaves. Now, that's not with going in and analyzing it. Who knows? There could be something different that just kind of mimics the same stuff we have here. But I kind of doubt that. And the reason I say that, as if you've ever heard of the anthropomorphic principle, it's a it's it's a um, kind of a, a discovery where people kind of noticed it about I don't know 30 years ago that there are a set of constants that that physicists have come up with that represent things in this universe, like gravity might be one of them. You know, one of the fundamental things that holds stuff together, and if these constants changed by even a tiny little bit, the whole universe would become unstable and wouldn't have even existed. It all would have blown up and gone away. So the model wouldn't have worked. In other words, the virtual reality wouldn't have been stable long enough to produce what it's produced, to produce us, to produce all the animals and the things that are at least we know of in this planet and solar system. So... Why is that? They call it an anthropomorphic principle because it looks like those constants right out the, you know, 15 decimal places or so were made just for this place, just so that 
creatures like us could evolve. So it looks like the world was designed for us. Otherwise, how could all of these constants just be so precise? You change the 10th decimal or 15th decimal place, and none of it holds together anymore. The VR bombs before it gets this far. Okay, so that's how hard it is to make a virtual reality that has long-term stability. It's a really difficult thing. You've got a lot of forces in the rule set that are have to be balanced. And it all has to come together for a very long-term simulation. And I think that's a very hard thing to do. In my mind, I see the uh, larger conscious system, you know, doing uh, big digital bang, take one, you know, pushing the run button, and the simulation goes a little while and then bombs. And then they modify the constants. Well, that wasn't too good. Gravity was too strong. It all sucked back into a ball, you know. So let's change that a little bit. Now, you know, big digital bang, take two, and so on. And over many, many thousand tries, it got these constants honed and tuned just perfectly so the whole thing would hold together. Well, if it's that hard that it requires that sort of precision, then it's not likely that you're going to have a lot of these virtual realities totally different than that. I think it's a very hard thing to do to produce a virtual reality as stable as this one. And once the system had something that worked, my guess is it was copy, paste, paste, paste when it came to make the others. But now it could change other things. It could change ratios of things, you know, how much oxygen to carbon dioxide. And could be a lot of other things that would change. It doesn't have to paste our whole universe in it and how it evolved. Just the very basic stuff. And then it'll evolve however it evolves. So things will evolve differently. But the fundamental material structure, virtual reality structure, I should say, to me seemed to be pretty much similar in all the various places. But now that's just me being there viewing it and being a part of it. It's not me doing, you know, science or doing research on, you know, what the trees are made of in some other reality frame, you know, whether they're made and constructed just like they are here. That I don't know, but I suspect the answer to that is yes, they're very similar. They may have evolved differently, but the fundamental structure, the periodic table and the, the elements, not necessarily the availability of elements, but at least the elements are probably very similar.